Welcome back to Night School, episode 26, The Poems of Emily Dickinson, part four. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. It's good to be back. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Good to have you here. And I'm rocking some headphones today. So if there's any volume issues with how loudly I'm speaking or if I'm speaking too softly, please let let me know. But, you know, I feel very Joe Rogan right now, plus some <laughs> hair on top. And uh, so... I'm, uh, I'm, you know, it's nice to have the, the microphone and the headphones and, you know, I have a second screen here and all of this is technology that has developed uh, as we've developed. And so it's kind of cool to see the material manifestations of our growth. Yeah, I mean, I'm here rocking my phone as usual and uh, I'm just, I'm happy to be reading some poems. <laughs> Yeah, we do it in our own ways. So speaking of reading some poems, did you want to read the, and we talked about this some in the pre-show, so I don't want to be artificial, but uh, do you want to read No Coward Soul is Mine or just immediately jump into the analysis of that, the the poem that was, I believe it was Reddit, um, it, it was Reddit Dickinson's death, right? That was what she requested. And we yeah. said that we would we would read it last time, but not offer comment that day anyway. and. Do you think it would be valuable to to read it and see what it might have been that Dickinson saw in it that that she saw as appropriate for her funeral and as you know revealing of something about her? Yeah, sure. I guess I can. Um, I'm reading it actually off of Poetry Foundation. They have a version on there. Um, oh, okay. I'll read I that one. Have... Yeah, I I just found. I just searched for it again and saw that they have one on here. So anyway, so yeah, and we can just give some impressions and thoughts about that. So she says, um, yeah, no coward soul is mine. No coward soul is mine. No trembler in the world's storm troubled sphere. I see heaven's glory shine and faith shines equal, arming me from fear. O God within my breast, almighty ever present deity, life that in me has to rest, as I undying life have power in thee. Vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts unutterably vain, worthless as withered weeds or idlest froth amid the boundless main. To waken doubt in one holding so fast by thy infinity, so surely anchored on the steadfast rock of immortality. With wide embracing love, thy spirit animates eternal years, pervades and broods above, changes, sustain, sorry, Yes, sustains, dissolves, creates, and rears. Though earth and moon were gone, and suns and universes ceased to be, and thou wert left alone, every existence would exist in thee. There is not room for death, nor Adam, that his might could render void, since thou art being and breath, and what thou art may never be destroyed. All right. Yeah, well, you know, just several things about that. Um, the the language of God and deity and the capitalized and unutterably vain, it's all highly biblical sort of Christian imagery. But it, it's mixed also, you know, also with these notions of infinity and immortality, steadfast rock, which are which are metaphors which go beyond simple Christian, but but embrace the mythologically general but embracing love, the spirit capitalized, pervading and brooding like the spirit that was above 
the abyss before the creation of the world, changes, sustains, dissolves, creates, and rears. It seems like the process of nature. See, we have also, though earth and moon were gone, suns and universes, and thou wert left alone, um, every existence would exist in thee. So sort of an idea of like the great pleroma, sort of a Dantist idea that all exists within a divine plan or cosmos, ordered whole. There is no not room for death. And then we have that sort of admixture that we've seen in Whitman. And I think we're also starting to detect in Dickinson of a combination of sort of naturalist language mixed with, um, mixed with theological language because nor Adam, not Adam, which it sounds very like that his might could render void. Um, thou, thou art being and breath being and breath. Um, you know, that's, that's existentialism and, uh, well, you know, the breath, the prana, the uh, suke or the panuma in the Greek, the anima in Latin, the spirit, uh, that which flows through the being, that which flows in the same way. And what thou art may never be destroyed. It, it seems like it's sort of an, an encomium to the soul, extra the institution of Christianity. Um, mixed yeah. with some understanding of natural times then and that i don't know she's hoping her spirit will live on or something like that um yeah i wonder how far to push that like the title of the poem being no coward soul is mine um i don't know whether we're to take that to be impugning other people who do stay within established institutions of religion as like they're they're sort of clinging to something in a frightened way which she the speaker has um sort of let go of or or sort of scorns even um that that those creeds right are, are withered weeds um or froth right so she seems to suggest that like the greatness of the divine is better served by like an expansive sort of unfettered um, uh, faith or, or yeah, uh, I guess sure, surety, certainty almost, right? Um, and, and it is kind of a more basic belief in the immortality of the soul, it's, it seems like, uh, which is, you know, philosophical as well as religious and as you say sort of from every pretty much basic to every uh wisdom tradition around the world so so not really like localized and i find it really interesting that it's um kind of you know in terms of form the poem reflects some of uh, dickinson's style like using the four line stanzas Right. Um, these, these lines are a bit longer. And so in that respect, it, it's like a mixture of Dickinson and Whitman, kind of. Like the, yes. the content is very, is very along the lines of Whitman, but it's, the form is very along the lines of Dickinson. And it's cool that she chose this, or at least that's how the story goes, that she chose this to be read at her funeral. Yeah, um, and you also have that anaphora that starts off the initial quatrain, just as Dickinson had in her last... Poem. But I, I just wanted to agree with you really quickly because just to read this poem, this Bronte poem, this, this Emily Bronte poem, as if it is Dickinson, um, uh, what, what I noticed when you were speaking was 
trying not to lose it right now because it was sort of a big one is is that yes just like Whitman she does seem to think that the soul encompasses far more than just uh traditional institutions but as we both read on the Poetry Foundation 101 or Emily C. Dickinson 101 is that Dickinson, though highly spiritual, had some trouble with the modern institution of religion, which ties back to our discussion of faith and quote unquote faith and how they may differ. And um, that led to us having a more general discussion in the pre-show yesterday about how somebody who is sort of living with the progressing spirit within themselves and is manifesting a creative life is always going to be extra traditional. It's always going to be pushing forward uh, from habits and codes and rules because they are creating the new sort of Piagetian uh, habits and codes and rules for the new games. They're like a game master. And, and, and so that even if that person were highly pious, like Aeneas, they would have to they would have to um, uh, uh, put some distance between themselves and the past by moving forward into the unknown. And that would put tension between them and the institutions which they're seeking to improve, but are also, uh, it, you know, it, it looks like they're, they're from the outside it, or the inside rather, it might look as if their intention were simply to destroy rather than to transform for the better. Yeah, it's, so it's interesting, like in the moment of a funeral, that's a public event in a way, right? So it's like a public declaration. Um, but on the other hand, the whole public is gathered there to defer to this one individual. And it's an extremely private moment in that regard, right? It's like everything is sort of as they want it to be. It's their dying wish. So um, people tend to to incline towards um, trying to follow those. Uh, so it, I think it's an interesting sort of... Um, coda to to a life to like to choose a poem such as this to to sum up in some way the the, the belief or the yeah the striving that she might have um been uh engaged in throughout her life uh so the part yeah the the poems for this the next couple of poems here seem to be really closely related to this idea so um if you want to try uh, some keep the Sabbath. Let's do it. Some keep the Sabbath going to church. So you just read this last poem. Yeah. How about I read this one? Yeah. Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a Bobo link for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus. I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so she's got, again, like this distinction between her and others, which I, I'm finding comes up quite a bit with her poetry. Um, before she was distinguish herself from um, scientists, right? And, and surgeons specifically now. So she's distinguishing herself from churchgoers. Um, but but in, in so far as she stays at home, she still keeps the Sabbath, right? So she's got sort of the spirit of the law and not the uh, that letter or the outward forms, right? So, uh, and it's, a, again, a really playful poem um, where she, uh, 
she says that um, her chorister, her dome, her surplice, like all of these sort of accoutrements of the church are still there. They're just uh, sort of incognito for her, right? Um, a bobolink, an orchard, uh, her wings, right? Um, I, I guess she's sort of, again, like likening her life to a bird's, um, as we saw with her, her poem on the death of one of the Brontes, I think it was Charlotte, but yeah, so uh, the, the tolling of the bell, right, which is sort of solemn and uh, again, like very public in a way, like over the whole town, instead, a little sexton, I, I take that to be another bird image, I'm not entirely sure, um, takes the place of that. And and God preaches, a noted clergyman. <laughs> uh, that sounds very Whitmanian, um, but maybe it's very uh, Dickensian. Um, the, the idea that instead of having an intermediary between you and God, right, um, is sort of collapsed there, where God himself is giving the sermon. And the sermon <laughs> is short. So you get your you get your leisure time back. You don't spend it all um, sitting in church and and like sort of dozing off, right? And the immediacy again, instead of like heaven being something at the end of your life, you get to be there, um, or you sort of you're instead of focusing on the getting to heaven, you're focusing on the going. So not that she is in heaven. I suppose that would be going a little too far, but that she's on this way, on this uh, this kind of delightful, um, peaceable kingdom sort of journey uh, here. And though um, the wings, I think that's the part that I'm I'm the most interested in. Maybe is like uh, we saw it earlier that she compared herself to a bee. She compares. Uh, the writer that she really admires to a bird. Um, I don't know if she's saying uh, that she is um, one of these singers or uh, like if this is the kind of thing that might be sung in her church. Uh, but it seems possible that she's sort of like carving out a kind of space um, for, for sort of kindred spirits and that the bird imagery is like her way of, of um, keying us to that in some ways. It's, it's a really recurrent thing in her poems, I'm noticing. So keep an eye well, out for that, I guess. And I mean, the bird, the bird is that which, uh, the bird is that which has the, inhabits the higher perspective and can see from above, but is also in some way removed from things, right? Because that's something that I would say I would potentially levy as a criticism behind her pure symbolic understanding of the function of church. So she seems to be laying out uh, sort of the idea that a church can be anywhere that you maintain the appropriate spirit by right behavior. But I, and I, I think to some extent that's true, um, but I, I might question to what extent that that interpretation leaves out the aspect of fellowship and community in the church and to what extent um, even if the church is a dead body of loss that does not make enough room for the spirit, that the spirit of camaraderie between those worshipers is an aspect of a religion, a very real and living aspect 
uh, of it that is difficult to emulate by yourself alone, uh, mm -hmm. if even possible, right? Like you, you cannot simply be a friend to yourself. Um, and I, I wonder to what extent we detect elements of that sort of loneliness here, that sort of attempt at rationalism, because there is something that is difficult to articulate about what that feeling of fellowship between people are, regardless of whether they're at a church or they work a similar job or they're in the same industry or they grew up on the same street. Uh, but that that is a real experience that one has. And so like sort of contra Whitman, who would at times let, uh, let his poetry be led by experience rather than rationality, I, I think we see here uh, an attempt at rationalization. Um, and, and, and that what goes part and parcel with that, which is interesting about what you notice about her comparing herself to some indefinite group of people again, some sum, is that in the Jungians say that part of male psychology is that male has a figure of the ideal woman because of the minority of female genes within a male, which is an interesting idea. So that you get like the dream woman, but then within woman, there is a multiplicity of images of males called the animus, which, um, which doesn't figure into one figure, a singularity, but rather a plurality. And uh, that one of the pieces of evidence, potentially of, of a woman who is suffering from say, an animus possession, just as a man who's uh, being subject to negative moods or mood swings that he cannot explain that are thus irrational is, called by the unions possessed by the anima, and I apologize for this creative explanation. A, when a woman attempts a rationalization that makes sense but is not true, it is irrational at the, uh, the sort of at the founding point or, or the core, that that is evidence of animus possession. And so I just wonder to what extent she is arguing sort of against a ghost that she is trying to argue against her own experience, that she understands that she might be lonely and missing something, but is attempting to rationalize that and sort of in, in very much a Miltonian devil sort of way where he says, you know, I'll take hell. It's, you know, it's good. Better to rule here than to serve in heaven. I wonder if that's the notion underlying this or if that's there at all. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way to see it as a kind of um, her self-talk in a way, um, which I, I suppose in some respect the poems are if, if they weren't really um, published in her lifetime, as seems to be the case with a lot of them. Uh, then she's, she's sort of the audience for her own poetry um, in a more direct way than maybe other poets who have a, a larger audience. Um, and so that seems possible. I mean, I, I still think she m seems to have a kind of ideal community of, of like-minded um, authors and uh, sort of kindred spirits, you know, like the Brontes that she seems to be writing for, um, at least in Potentia. And, uh, and nature itself, you know, seems closely uh, sort of invoked here as as being her company at this church right like the orchard and the birds um and i guess the uh the distinction between like her 
kind of rationality or imaginativeness and, and Whitman's emphasis on experience. I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's gotta be something to that as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's only with um, appeals to like a biography or, or some kind of firsthand account, like letters or something like that, that we'd be able to say for sure, uh, get, get a better beat or like a, at least not maybe for sure, but get at least a little more data to go on to, to be able to develop that hypothesis further. Like what's in the 101 thing on here is like she was kind of an, um, an outcast at school almost, right? She's like uh, skeptical of her religious um, academy she attended. Uh, and I guess you, you know, probably could read more into that um, about like how she might have felt lonely or, or sort of tried to take that loneliness as a badge rather than a burden or something like that. Like, yeah, that all seems feasible. Um, but again, it's sort of speculative. So I don't know. Yeah. So hypothesis at the moment, if we find some yeah. evidence, great, not to be confirmation bias minded. And if we don't, well, we can cast it aside. And I think that's what you have to do with hypotheses that don't fit the facts. And um, so uh, do we have time for a second one? I do if you do. Yeah, I can give it a few minutes. Let's, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> Let's see what we've got. I dwell in possibility. All right. Um, so I dwell in possibility number 466. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors. Chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky. Of visitors, the fairest, for occupation, this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Interesting. I noticed that sort of slant rhyme that you mentioned in that last, in the third of three stanzas there, the this and dice dice which don't quite rhyme uh following eye and sky and prose and doors which i would say is another example of that so that's very interesting but um what we have here is sort of a pseudo religious language again we have possibility which is uh philosophical language comes from potential like you were mentioning in potentia and she's she's sort of saying that the transformative it seems to be that she's either saying she more likely i would say the personified um, transformative force that produces actuality from possibility, which would be the logos, is what she's talking about here. And she's sort of wedging it between philosophical and traditional religious imagery. Cedars, trees, chambers, temples, uh, doors also to temples and windows, uh, to some sort of house, the fair house, that's heaven, of course, impregnable of eye, again, heaven, somewhere that you can't actually see, you know, the sort even the sort of in the Odyssey, you get that when Menelaus says of his home compared to Zeus's, that Zeus's is far finer than you can even imagine. And that's literally true, right? Because it is beyond your imagination as a concept. And then the gambles of the sky drawing us again to the idea of heaven being in a high up place of visitors, the fairest, angelic, or occupation, this, the spreading wide by narrow hands. Again, the use of hands and the fact that it's capitalized to gather paradise. So what gathers paradise? Well, it's either a human or a god. So there's a tension there, I would say, especially because of occupation as well. 
It's not a God, but rather a human that works. Um, and so uh, just two things about this is I, I do see it using the sort of uh, religious but secularized, not Christian language, uh, more philosophical Christianity uh, and with an, with an eye to naturalism, but also highly imaginative as well. But I also wonder, and again, I'm going to put this as one of those hypotheses about her that we might need to know more about, uh, that possibly given her gender and social circumstance and possibly also related back to her exclusion in school is that this strikes me also as that which a person who is watching the world go by and not acting within it, how they would feel, especially a young person who does not yet understand that that possibility disappears, who has many possibilities laid out in front of himself or herself, or on the other hand, has much potential, but doesn't have the, the actual circumstances to manifest that potential in the world. And so has the unfortunate experience of watching that possibility dissipate in this case in front of her own eyes um so yeah, well that's what i've got yeah i mean i like i feel like it's really useful and and intriguing to to get to sort of hypothesize and and speculate a bit about um the, the personality of the writer like that's so fascinating because again they're sort of like seers they're, they're sort of prophetic voices and so trying to understand as much as possible about what makes them tick, you know, is like extremely interesting. Um, but it says, I, I mean, it's like, that's something that for, for like teachers listening or for us as teachers thinking about ways to like engage students. I think there's definitely students who get more engaged in literature when they feel like it's relevant to like a larger purpose, which might be like figuring out other people, you know? And so that can be a good way to like, get students who otherwise wouldn't be super interested in like syllables and meter and stuff interested in poetry because it's like so expressive of the personality behind it. Um, and so I think there's definitely like a lot to be said for that um, as long as you don't like go too far with it and sort of lose sight of the, the poem itself, which, you know, I don't, I don't feel like we're in a danger of doing that, but I could totally see, you know, other readers, um, potentially other professors of literature uh, doing that sometimes so, so you know what's, caveat there yeah what's funny that you say about that is that again your interpretation and again with the first stanza has drilled into me what the actual physical meaning of it that this uh, the first stanza illustrates uh, the interplay between poetry and prose and how poetry is open to more possible meanings and that it has more windows thus and thus more light can be gained from it or information but that again there is since uh there is that possibility of misunderstanding what it means like you said like getting away from the the uh, text in a way that prose doesn't admit right prose is far more matter of fact it's harder to misinterpret it i mean of course there's difficult prose like <laughs> james joyce but we would say that's almost poetry because of how difficult it is yeah, absolutely. And so um, what you what you sort of lose in clarity of, of story, you make up for in that kind of um, openness uh, of interpretation and interpretive like zest or something, right? It's like a, it's a bit like a puzzle um, and you get to sort of um, play with it a little bit here. 
it, it's very similar and like, you know, comparing it to the one we just read, in some ways it's very similar because it's got this kind of uh, analogy again between the world and a built place, a constructed place. In this case, not a church, but a, a house, right? And a fairer house. Um, maybe the distinction isn't that great. Like it seems to be developing a very similar kind of idea because it does seem to be drawing again on pretty um, religiously saturated uh, spiritual kind of language. Um, and of course, yeah, I, I totally agree that the the concept here that the the poem itself is the house or like poetry is the house that that seems to ring true to me that that is how I would tend to read that and um and so in some sense you know she's likening herself uh to the creator right because she's built yes. this house and um and in some way she's analogous then to the maker of the cosmos of, of nature right and so when she says that she spreads wide her hands you know that's like a you t take your hands together to pray and you spread them wide to, to work, right? To gather, as she says, it's kind of an agricultural image. Um, it's a very beautiful poem. I, I find this one very powerful, um, more so than the one we just read, actually, maybe because it's a little less packed. You know, it's, it's more open to different kinds of, well, it's got more windows and doors, right? Um, and, uh, and it's also the cedars, you know, impregnable of eye, that too, I think goes back to that thought that, you know, this is the poem of someone who is, who has a very intense inner life. It's, it says to me, right, that there's hidden things here. She feels like a forest, you know, that's dark that you can't really see into. Um, but that when you're in it is this kind of amazing uh, divine place, um, a, a sacred space almost, right? Then, and she's got, she's got visitors there. You know, she, she's not lonely, although she might be alone or something, you know, something like that. She's got these visitors. I think that's us, you know, readers or kindred spirits yes. who, who are, who are capable of kind of like patiently untangling some of her complexity um, or seeing through the apparent simplicity, however you want to look at that. And, and this is, again, it's her occupation. This, I love it when you just have like a single word that, that that demonstrative pronoun is one of the most powerful words I feel like in the English language because because it can do pretty much anything you know it can stand for practically anything else <laughs> be it uh, any part of speech so yeah I just I think uh, grammatically that's like the word that gives you the most bang for your buck so if you want to do a grammar lesson on this uh, this is a good poem to go with <laughs> you know and I think you nailed it and just to articulate it in a different way I think what does what created this house of words was the logos or her conscious mind and thus what resides in there in potential is the access of the logos which created that her the conscious intention or the rational intellect that created this house and what it does is it summons the logos of its visitors whose occupation is to understand it. It summons out our rational intellects, right? And then we have to articulate what, it's, what we see there. We are in a house of the divine, in the presence of the divine, where two or three are gathered precisely because uh, the divine act of creation we are witness to because uh, in, in interpreting the poem, we use the same capacity that created the poem itself. Yeah, it's, it's, our, it's kind of our teacher, our guide. 
uh, or, you know, host. That's a, a loaded word, but yeah, I, I like that interpretation a lot. I think that's very cool. Yeah, because then it summons itself back into existence through rearticulation, and uh, and, and 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 thus we we get something even more from Emily Dickinson than just her being or presence, but we get to access the sort of universal understandableness or understand understanding nature of the intellect here because just the fact that she used hers to create this house uh makes us um makes the house worthy of investigation by us in order to understand that which the intellect can do and to understand uh the meaning that uh, uh an intellect can try to convey that seems to be the ultimate thing that we are always searching for right the meaning of that which another intellect has made for some purpose. Right, right. And to, to take that to its furthest, you know, like logical or whatever. And like, so then the ultimate intellect would have like a totally unfathomable purpose, which you could right. like only continually approach, but never, never exhaust, right? Or something oh, like wow. that. Yeah. Yeah, that idea, that's like a conversion level idea right there. That's, that's, that's very powerful. Uh, and, and it does make sense if each human in the world is walking the path of the hero and see, searching for meaning that the, the concept of the divine would be the agglomeration of all those paths together in some fundamental unity, right? And it's like, bang, there's the puzzle of existence. It's impossible. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But maybe it's patterned, and so maybe it is possible, and uh, maybe I'm making a category error. Like, I mean, obviously all the details aren't possible, but maybe, you know, it, it can be encapsulated within something like the yin-yang, the daijutsu, or, or like the cross or something like that. Maybe that is the power of one of those symbols, that they make all the infinitude of reality um, subject to order in a symbol, and that they're so rich because everything that is is compacted into there at a very low level of resolution. Yeah. Well, and again, like in some sense it's, it's embodied um, as you, as you seek to articulate it, right. It doesn't by itself like really do much, but then you have this kind of um, this game or this, this activity that you get involved with as you look at it, as you sort of confront it um, and that will develop, you know, your, uh, your explanatory powers and your imagination um, and sort of engage you as long, as long as and as much as you want to sort of delve into it, it will continually reveal more and more of what, what's there. So, well, right. I, I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that I should get going here, but this has been a lovely, a lovely Dickinson discussion again. Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel a, a real distinct difference between her and the other poets that we've done. And I'm also really noticing starting the beginning of sort of an American spirit. Like we don't seem to like boxes so much. Um, and we do seem to like our nature and we do seem to like our individualism. And it's, it's just very interesting to start seeing some of these traits that are very much still a part of who we are uh manifest themselves in the literature of these 19th century american poets yeah i i think that 
we are just, you know, just scratching the surface of it. But I do agree that in broad outlines, that does seem to be really strongly marked, that kind of individualism that uh, outside of, of containment within institutions. It's fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, until next time, this is great. Have a good weekend. Right. I'll talk you to too. you this weekend. <laughs> All right. Sure we will. Later. Bye.